Hey, Love Tribe, get excited for another great episode with Chase and our special guest. But before we start, I wanted to remind you about our amazing and free 14-day happy couple challenge. I don't know about you, but with the upcoming holidays, I'm feeling this hectic energy and I'm craving some grounding, fun, and meaningful connection with my partner. So whether you've been with your partner for many years and you're needing to mix things up or you're a newly coupled and you're looking to dive in to learn more about each other, the 14-Day Happy Couple Challenge is perfect for anyone wanting to deepen their relationship and have fun while doing it. So head on over to our website to sign up. You can start connecting deeper physically and emotionally today over at idopodcast.com slash 14 with our simple, easy, and doable daily challenges arriving straight into your inbox daily. This free 14-Day Challenge will help you break the old habits and build new engaging habits that will push you to create a deeper intimacy with your partner. Sign up today for free for the 14-Day Happy Couple Challenge to start strengthening and improving your relationship today. Head on over to idopodcast.com slash 14. That's idopodcast.com slash 14 to sign up for our free challenge today. What's going on, guys? Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. Or tuning in. I guess you haven't listened to it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something, and I was like, soon to be listening. Soon to be listening, yes. <laughs> and I, I remembered it's, it's uh, nice to not correct your partner. Oh, you know, that's right. Right I'm not away. mad. It's okay. Okay. Because I corrected myself first, so yeah, that's, that's why it's okay. I waited. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> We have an awesome show for you guys today where we welcome Dr. Alex Belser, and he is a psychologist in private practice in New York City and a psychedelic researcher at Yale University in New York University. And today we talk about how we can introduce ecstatic practices into our life, and those would be practices that give us ecstasy. And it's super interesting conversation. Sarah and I talk about our recent experiment with an ecstatic practice, and then we dive into his research in psychedelics. Um, we could do several mm -hmm. episodes on this stuff. We think it's so fascinating and important. So hopefully you guys do too. This episode was very different from the episodes we normally do. And I really enjoyed it because it was, for me, brand new perspective and information that we haven't really talked about. So hopefully you can find this information valuable of ways of things to put into your relationship, especially maybe doing an ecstatic dance class with your partner. Chase and I, like we said, just did one last week and it was a very bonding experience and we had a lot of fun. And uh, if that's something that you wanted to do, or are you wanting to get your partner to do it with you? Do it. Just do it. <laughs> Highly recommend. Yes. And let us know what you think. Send us uh, an email or join the Love Tribe group. And I'm definitely 
really interested in this topic. Sarah is as well. And if you guys want to hear more episodes kind of like this that that are a little bit different than just having a therapist on and talking about those things, which obviously will be the predominant mode of of these podcasts, but it's nice to change it up and uh, it's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> so as always, thank you guys so much for tuning in, joining the Love Tribe group, subscribing, telling your friends and family, and uh, we really appreciate you. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. We are really excited to talk to you today about today's topic because we, as we mentioned in the pre-show, just had our own mutual experience with an ecstatic practice as a couple and... That is how we can bring ecstatic practices into our lives to help improve our relationships. So let's start with having you tell our listeners what an ecstatic practice is. Maybe a good way to do that is to ask, is for me to ask you listening, when, if you think back, when was the last time you felt something that resembled ecstasy in your mind? resembled something that you don't experience on an, on an everyday moment, but wasn't fearful or paranoid or anger-making. And, you know, when I ask people this question, sometimes they really struggle to come up with something. You know, they might have warm moments by a fire or feelings of tenderness with a loved one or friend, but oftentimes people have a really hard time remembering as an adult when it was that they felt totally free or liberated or ecstatic, deeply in their body, deeply connected with their breath, um, maybe having a soulful or spiritual experience. So the terminologies get a little complicated because people use different words for the same thing and the same words for different things. Um, but what I have been interested in is, you know, as human beings, we have these amazing machines um, is how we sometimes think about them. Sometimes we think about them as computers, these bodies that carry our consciousness around in and allow us to experience each other through lovemaking, through speech, through the beauty of the world. And what's curious about these bodies is that they also have um, such a deep connection with the mind. And so we might think of using the word mind body and the mind body through 99% of our daily waking life kind of exists in a very narrow band. Uh, and through practices such as meditation and sort of stillness practices, we can cultivate different types of awareness. And people are kind of familiar with that end of the spectrum. But uh, oftentimes we've neglected, we've kind of forgotten, especially in the West, especially in like the wealthy industrial global North, we have gotten out of touch with what I think is sort of... Um, really uh, our right as human beings, which is to experience uh, the full range of what our mind and our spirit can access. And so these are types of ecstatic practices that might reliably be used to bring about, to occasion different states of consciousness, extended states of consciousness, uh, reaching both out and up, but also deeply inside of ourselves. And so what I mean by that is, 
you guys were talking about dance. I mean, most people who dance like have a good time at the reception, at the wedding, but a, a truly ecstatic dance, whether it's barefoot or through a deep intentional or ritual practice with the group, uh, is something that is as old as human civilization, as old as human family itself. Uh, and especially if you dance for a long time and deeply get into your body, it can bring about or build a platform for a profoundly ecstatic experience. And most forms of dance aren't just solo dance. They involve our partners. They involve our uh, romantic partners, our friends, the people that we are drawing connection from. But I'm also interested in things like psychedelic consciousness. So a lot of my research is in psychedelic medicine, uh, and there's a huge clinical resurgence in the psychiatry community and the psychology uh, professional community looking at how can we um, take these ancient medicines that have been used indigenously around the world um, and how might they help us heal and also point the way towards something greater than ourselves. But there's other things too. I mean, like the sort of fads for like marathon running and even ultra marathon running and sort of exhaustion practices can bring about something really powerful, different states of consciousness that are conversion experiences are really beautiful. Um, but we also get into things like even like BDSM and sex, uh, these sorts of like tantric practices, sacred intimacy practices in sexual relationships can open the door uh, and the gateway with heart and intention and oftentimes facilitation and guidance towards something that is beyond the mundane and beyond the ordinary. And I feel like this is what helps us to, um, you know, reclaim ecstasy in our lives. There is so much to get into mm -hmm. here. We really want to talk about your psychedelic research. But before we get to that, maybe we can start with with ecstatic dance. And, and as we mentioned, Sarah and I did it the other week. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it feels like there's something super elemental and human, like in our DNA, to, to dance and to move and to do these ecstatic practices. And, and it is like a, like a therapy. I, I mean, I know I feel amazing during it and then after, and it's like, man, I need that more in my life. And, and like you said, we're, we're missing this. So yeah. I'd like you to comment on that. And then have you personally participated in ecstatic dance uh, practices? Oh, I, I have. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because so much of dance is associated with imbibing a lot of alcohol, which is how I did it for the first like 15 years. It's like a lot of alcohol and then you go dancing. Um, a lot of these intentional sacred dance communities, um, like, for example, Five Rhythms, which is a, a practice here in New York and in many other places around the country and the world. Um, the Rhythm Society, which was founded by my friend Bob Jesse and others in San Francisco. Um, and other like ritual dance scenes in, in at least the United States. You know, these are, these are places where people come together as a community. Um, they get to know each other. They might hold hands or have a... Um, a grounding relaxation ritual to sort of open the space with intention, uh, drawing back from our pagan roots, drawing back from like our deep traditions of community. Uh, and these are like held spaces in a way, right? Oftentimes things aren't for sale. We try to ex like get ourselves out of a uh, late liquid capitalist mindset. We try to get ourselves out of um, body tension, 
uh, and postures of holding, where we may be holding in trauma, blocking certain ways that we might access movement in our body. And when we open our body in different ways, different emotional states come out. Now, it's not always ecstasy. And in fact, to get to ecstasy, uh, we have to sometimes clear out a lot of furniture. So this can involve confrontations with the self, confrontations with our deep relationships uh, to the parts of ourselves that we're upset with, angry with, disappointed with, memories that might be difficult. There might be grieving that has to be done. Um, and sometimes these feeling states can be accessed through the body. And so we see in psychology a movement towards somat- what we call somatic experiencing, which is one modality. I myself am um, a yoga teacher in a couple of different modalities, and I like to bring that into my practice as a psychologist. Uh, and with the dance, we get to open ourselves to an experience where we might enter into a different state of consciousness. Now, this may take many hours of dancing. It's not something that just happens at the drop of the hat. Um, And it does require a sense of group holding oftentimes, but it is possible. And people report feeling refreshed and alive. And I promise you, if there was enough research funding from large corporations or even from the government about the not just the physiological benefits of dance, of dance, but the emotional benefits, the psycho-spiritual benefits. We would see people, uh, you know, doctors picking up the prescription pad and uh, assigning us a, a script for uh, multiple hours of ecstatic dance with our partners on a regular basis because it can really clear out a lot of uh, congestion in the system and, and, and in that way makes space for something that's um, something beautiful and even radical to come in. I can't stress how important, as you said, about feeling refreshed and coming away from it with a completely different perspective because Chase had shared for him that like he likes the moving and the dancing aspect and going into it, like I wouldn't say I'm a big dancer. And so for me, not only was it hard because I don't And I don't want to say I don't identify as like a big dancer, but that's kind of how I felt going into it. But also going into it as this whole judging myself and thinking that people are going to be judging me. And when I'm in the moment when we were doing it, it was pretty amazing how nobody cared what I was doing, (laughs) you know, like nobody's looking at me or judging me. And after the fact, not only did I feel so refreshed, but I was not only physically exhausted, but emotionally exhausted from all these kind of emotions that are going on while I'm dancing for these two hours. So I've only done it one time, but for our listeners who haven't done it, try it. You may totally not feel comfortable doing it at all, but you will come away with it with something, I think, emotions and feelings that you've never felt before. And Sarah, I think that you, you, you really hit on a core component of what I'm talking about, which is the unselfconsciousness of your experience. You know, initially you're worried that people are thinking you're dancing like on the floor, or maybe you don't have the moves other people have, or it might their body shape or size. Um, and uh, so many of our dance experiences from prom and before are sort of semi-socially traumatic. Um, but if, if it's possible to find a place just to be in your body, we lose our sense of um, self-consciousness for a moment. We sort of uh, get swept away in something that is greater than ourselves. And so the, the rigid egos of our, uh, the rigid boundaries rather of our ego, what, how we define ourselves, the boundary between me and you, the boundary between what we're aware of and what 
is in our unconscious or our, our deep unconscious, uh, the boundary between existing and not existing, um, and our, our basic sense of connection starts to become a little bit more liminal, right? It starts to become a little bit less rigid, less boxed in um, when we can let go of that sort of like hyper self-consciousness, which can really just nip creativity in the bud. It can really just like, um, you know, it, it, it can really um, stall and halt our efforts to experience something that's greater than ourselves. And, you know, dance isn't the only thing. I mean, there's um, some people will really take naturally to a certain type of modality or a type of ecstatic practice. There's a this beautiful tradition of holotropic breathwork, which uses... Um, it's usually two to three hours of uh, deep uh, breathing. And sometimes the instruction is to breathe a little bit more deeply and a little bit more often than you normally would. But if you do that over time, uh, this is with a facilitator, usually with a group in a circle and you're caring for others and being cared for by them. People, it's an intentional practice to allow the mind and the body through breath, not through dance, but through breath in this instance, usually lying down, uh, to let the the movement of the breath carry you into a visionary state of consciousness. And so um, there's been tremendous writing on this. This practice for many people allows them to, in their closed eye, with there's, there's beautiful music playing, oftentimes loud driving music, uh, pulling from the tradition of ethnomusicology and Helen Bonney's work, where you use music and breath combined as a sort of launch pad for a human experience that you don't get when you're sitting in traffic, that you don't get when you're checking the news in the morning, that you don't get when you're just making toast um, in the kitchen. Uh, this is a special space with intention that allows people to have colorful visions, to enter other worlds, to enter, you know, what some people might describe as the spirit realm or to speak with ancestors or to learn things about themselves and their family members that they might not have had immediate access to that perhaps they knew in some way but couldn't quite um, reach. And this practice is really quite beautiful. So, um, you know, this is something that doesn't require any sort of medicine or drugs at all. Uh, and it doesn't require you to get up and do the mambo either, but it's a beautiful practice. And if you haven't had the chance to try a type of intensive breathwork practice like this, I would, I would recommend that you consider it. I love how earlier you mentioned that these kinds of practices are allowing us to experience a more full spectrum of what it means to be human. And that's what it really is to me because most of us just go through our lives and, and we don't experience these things. And that's what's so beautiful about the age we live in is that we can be exposed to these new ideas and, and through people like yourself. And I realized I, I grew up as an athlete, I'm a basketball player. And then I was a professional uh, stand-up paddler and, and, and it was an endurance sport. And what I loved most about both of those was like the unselfconsciousness that you described in like digging, I would call it like digging deep and you kind of, you kind of, you, you lose your sense of self and you're, you're working hard physically, but that, that was like this thing that I was chasing. And, and now only later recently realizing that I was kind of chasing that ecstatic experience that, that now I'm exploring through dance and, and want to do through psychedelics and, and really to experience a more full spectrum of what it means to be human. And then to wrap this all up, to bring it back 
into my life, but our life, my, my relationship with Sarah, my relationship mm-hmm. in the world. And it's really uh, a powerful thing. And it's cool to see these movements. They seem to be having like this resurgence. Is that, is that what you're seeing on your end? I think that's that's right. I mean, it's first of all beautiful to hear your experience of sort of the endurance uh, paddle work and and endurance sports in general, which I think um, for the fraction of us that have done those sorts of sports or who currently do them, they really bring on. It's not just the runner's high. There is really um, an entire psychology of like intense physical exertion that we don't really have much of an inkling of what's going on, but people have such profound experiences. Um, and it has to do with like radical exertion of the body oftentimes. Um, now this may not be the most effective or the only way of, um, affecting a sort of ecstatic or, um, non-ordinary state of consciousness, but it is, it is certainly one way that many people access it. And we see that in the resurgence in like marathon running. I think that what you've seen though, in the last, at least uh, 30 years or so, 40 or more, there's been a huge resurgence, as you know, in, in sort of meditation and mindfulness and yoga. Um, and I, I just want to kind of like be, I'll be as succinct with this argument as I can. It's a, this incredible thing happens where after the, and in the midst of ongoing systemic power oppression between colonial powers and other countries, we have this sort of like movement towards east-west exchange starting in the 50s and 60s and then continuing to today. And what many of the Western scholars and and um, practitioners found was when they went to places like Japan and China and uh, Thailand and India, and they came back with these practices. Oftentimes they brought back stillness practices, mindfulness practices, meditation practices, um, that have become over the course of years, and you'll see this in different studios, kind of secularized. And in the West, we've commodified them. You go, you pay a fee, they give you uh, an hour of instructional mindful, uh, practice oftentimes. Uh, and this is, this is beautiful and, and, and can be very helpful as people progress along their myriad paths. But what's interesting is that in doing this, um, I think we took the practices that were easiest for us to adopt into our culture. And that's like, oh, you want me to sit down for 25 minutes and just be quiet and sort of focus my mind? Okay, that's something I can imagine doing, and we start to do that. But the sort of like riotous, bacchanal, ex- tantric, uh, even potentially seemingly explosive, sort of joyous, dangerous, shadowy, confronting practices are scary. Um, They are more foreign to us. And so um, the uh, people were okay with the quiet sitting on your mat practices, but they're in the in the tradition of human history and anthropology, and we see this going back to Merce Eliade's work on archaic, te- what he called archaic techniques of ecstasy and shamanism throughout the world, is that there are these sorts of ecstatic practices, people holding ecstatic postures, people doing trance work, drumming work, music work, physiological work, breath work. Um, and medicine work in various ways. And these feel a little bit further afield. But I think what you're seeing in the culture, um, 
through like a willingness with Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind about psychedelic medicine, a rising an interest in indigenous practices like ayahuasca, a rise in interest in things like ecstatic dance and all night dance events. Um, you're seeing it, like the culture is ready for something, and uh, or at least some people seem to be ready for something. And we realize that it's not about sitting in our cubicles all day long, but it involves um, a type of unbounderedness that, in an intentional way, in a safer way with integrity, that allows us to go somewhere that we don't normally go. Um, and I think that the culture is ready for that. And I think that the field of psychology and counseling um, is ready for that in some ways too. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning as I as I go. I'm, I'm by no means an expert in this field because the field is so vast as to incorporate hundreds of different cultures, time and space, and different modalities that are, are so different as to be, it's almost strange to even lump them together <laughs> into this category. Um, and sometimes people have these sort of spontaneous ecstatic experiences, these sort of peak experiences, as Abraham Maslow called them, um, that might just happen serendipitously. Um, but my, my understanding is that they can be occasionally even uh, reliably induced through intentional ritual work uh, with somebody who understands a particular modality. So for... Our listeners who may be hearing this and they're like, yes, that's me. I want to extend or create this practice in my life, but I'm just not quite sure where to start. Or maybe they are afraid of fear or judgment. Do you have any tools or some practices that they can use to slowly add this sort of practice into their life? Let's take a break and talk about today's sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Plan to Eat. So I am a big fan of planning out my meals in advance for the week and only having to go to the grocery store once. I have like a weird thing <laughs> about going to the grocery store more than once a week. You do. And I think it's rubbed off on me. So <laughs> I'm in the same boat, but I am horrible about organizing recipes and creating lists for the grocery store. I always end up forgetting like the crucial ingredient for whatever recipe I'm trying to make. And so we end up making like boring salads with grilled chicken. So no fun. All right, sometimes. <laughs> it's okay. But for me, it's super important that Stella is introduced to a variety of flavors and foods, which means we need to start cooking a lot more. And Plan to Eat makes it a whole lot easier to do that. Plan to Eat was born from their desire to eat real and delicious food prepared at home. Plan to Eat is a tool to help you prepare delicious wholesome food that nourishes both body and soul. So here's how it works. And I just gave Chase the whole demonstration and he very is cool. super stoked. So <laughs> plan to eat is a subscription service that gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website. I just showed him how I clipped from like multiple websites create a meal plan, and then their software automatically creates and organizes a shopping list based on your plan. And like I just mentioned, I just added my favorite Kenyan braised beef recipe, which is so good. And I literally copy and pasted the URL and it turned it into a perfect grocery list. And it was super pretty because it's formatted like by each area in the grocery store of what you need to get. And so I am super stoked to use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty impressive, just like the technology or whatever's going right? on with the algorithm. I just don't even how, know what that is. It's amazing. <laughs> how it does that. And 
With your subscription, you can access your meal plans and shopping lists on your desktop and their mobile app, and they have a full-time support team to help you get started and answer any questions that you may have. Plan to Eat offers monthly and yearly options for $4.95 a month or $39 a year. That's only 75 cents a week. Whoa. Less than a dollar. Less than a dollar, people. If you didn't know what 75 <laughs> cents was. And they also include a free, fully functional 30-day trial with no payment required so you can easily see if it's right for you. Plan to Eat only has one big sale per year, but if you visit plantoeat.com slash I do, you can start a 60-day trial instead of their normal 30-day trial. For free. So- Fall free. So <laughs> check it out. We know it will make your life a lot easier like it has for mine. So visit plantoeat.com slash I do to start your free 60-day trial. Today's episode is also brought to you by Zola. We all know planning a wedding can be super stressful. I was lucky that Sarah did most of the planning <laughs> and I just all said the heavy yes lifting. <laughs> to everything. So it wasn't too stressful for me. But if you're planning, it can be stressful. And that's why Zola wants to help you take the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites, the easiest wedding registry, affordable invite suites, and more. And if you're planning a fall wedding, it is time to order your invites and day of paper. I've mentioned before on the show that I have a wedding planning business in Costa Rica, and I always recommend Zola to our brides, especially for their invites and day of paper. And Zola has just added thousands of invite designs for every style and color scheme. And as most of my brides are planning a destination wedding, they don't want to break their budget by spending a ton on their save the dates and invites. So Zola's friendly prices are always a win. And not only can you order invites and print your guest addresses for free on free envelopes, but you can manage your headcount with their free, easy guest list manager tool. Sign up at Zola.com slash I do to get 30% off your invites and paper order. That's Zola, Z-O-L-A dot com slash I-D-O and get 30% off your invites and paper order. Zola.com slash I do. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And it's a hard one. I think that the best way to do this, I mean, you're podcast and and the work that you do is in relationship. I think that these are really relational medicines um, and, and, and practices. And when I say medicine, I mean that in the broadest sense, like practices. Um, and so I would encourage people to seek out people in their communities, in their lives that are doing something that they feel called to do. I don't think that this is necessarily the sort of thing that you do solo or alone. And in fact, that might be the wrong way to do it, but encourages greater isolation and disconnection. Um, So doing it with a partner or with a friend, seeking out a teacher or a facilitator or a guide or a community in our existing group or building a group um, to do something that's really beautiful is sort of powerful. I mean, I have, for example, um, some friends in New York that uh, practice a type of uh, rattle work uh, where they... um, uh, hold what they call an ecstatic posture. So these are postures that we see repeated on um, pottery across different cultures across the world, where you might be uh, standing in a sort of crouch with your hands in a particular position. Uh, this is like, you know, 
emblematic of some mudra work that you might see in the East. And then they rattle into themselves into a sort of state. Um, and it, it may only last 20 minutes. Um, and in doing so, it allows for a different sort of experience to arise. Um, and they've, they've just sort of figured out how to do that themselves. They've gone and done studied rattling at a place called the Kayamunga Institute. Um, and uh, the person who's work I'm referring to is James Lawyer, Lawyer uh, L-A-W-E-R, Lawyer, excuse me. Um, so it's a hard question because there's not much of an infrastructure built up. It's not like I can say, oh, go to your local Starbucks and like buy the book and have a too <laughs> ecstatic practice. It's not really commodified like that. And I think um, there are resources available um, if people are willing to seek and look. And I think that people should ask themselves the question, what do they feel what do they feel drawn to? What do they feel curious about? Um, maybe they they feel stuck in their lives. I, I mean, this is the most common, most common refrain that I get for from the people that I speak with and work with in my private practice is that they say, you know, I just really feel stuck. Um, and to get unstuck, I think we might have to shake things up a little bit. So I, I would encourage <laughs> people to do that, um, you know, with with heart and uh, with care and with each other. I could geek out on the anthropology of this for like a whole couple podcasts because I think that's so oh, yeah? fascinating. Yeah. And I was an anthropology major and it's just very apparent that our ancestors kind of had this figured out because all of these practices, like you mentioned, have been around for hundreds of thousands of years and, and you know, the, the dance and how in Africa – the trance dances, you know, the whole theory around the drumming in Africa is that psychedelic plants weren't really that available. So they developed these um, erratic drum patterns to get, you know, that that would induce trance states. So it seems like there's something elemental in being a human that that we want to alter our consciousness. And it's fascinating in the work in that you're doing with psychedelics is is adding to this resurgence of getting back to what our ancestors have figured out. So now you're studying it in the lab. So let's talk a little bit about your work in psychedelic research and how we can bring that or how you see in the future that coming into improving our, our relationships and, and individually. Yeah. I'm happy to share a little bit about it. I, you know, I am, um... I think if, and many of, of the people listening here will sort of know this from their own, their own personal experience or through people in their lives. You know, the field of psychology and psychiatry have really gone through a bit of um, uh, a difficult period in the last 20 years. Most uh, SSRIs uh, for depression don't work for most patients most of the time. A lot of the treatments and our mental health infrastructure are geared at suppressing symptoms rather than getting at deeply at trying to cure what ails us. Um, and a lot of people are really unhappy and have a lot of symptoms of anxiety, depression, sleep, addiction, ongoing relationship patterns and interpersonal issues that are dogging them. And um, what, what I and some other people have been looking to is, is to see if some certain types of medicines, and these are psychedelic medicines, might be helpful. And What's interesting is that psychedelic medicine was, you know, normal in the 1950s and 60s. There were over a thousand peer-reviewed scientific papers published on the use of medicines like psilocybin and LSD. Uh, 
in clinical settings, and they were very successful in many, many ways. It wasn't until Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act into law in 1970 that we completely, um, the, the kibosh was put down, and we, we were really unable to do research for a couple of decades. Um, and what we've seen in the last 15 years is that dozens of international universities from our work at NYU and our a couple of studies that we're doing at Yale right now to Imperial College in London and Johns Hopkins has a huge psychedelic research center opening up next year, UCLA and dozens of other schools. We see that um, treating people with anxiety, depression and trauma and other things like OCD, um, these are difficult things to do, but we find that working with um, these medicines in conjunction with supportive psychotherapy before, during and after um, leads to very uh, large magnitude reductions in their symptoms across the board for, for many different types of conditions. And I don't want to overstate this, but for example, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, has just uh, granted breakthrough therapy status designation for psilocybin, this is magic mushrooms, as a treatment for depression in the United States. So there's a large multi-site trial looking at whether we can treat people who have failed out of other depression treatments like conventional SSRIs, CBT, uh, if psilocybin and a supportive therapy can help. The same thing goes for MDMA, which is called Molly or uh, ecstasy. Um, it was a very popular club drug, drug in the sort of 80s and 90s and in the aughts. But before that, actually had a, a long and storied history as a relationship, counseling relationship, therapy relationship tool. It was used um, quite a bit by uh, with couples who are looking to reconnect in their partnership, uh, oftentimes with facilitation of a counselor. Um, and um, these MDMA treatment has been used. I'm currently a therapist where we're taking MDMA and we're working with people with severe PTSD. So these are oftentimes war vets, combat vets. They come back from Afghanistan or Iraq, having seen a lot of combat, uh, these people with sexual trauma. And with three sessions of MDMA and with um, significant support, we find that out of over 100 patients, 68% of them a year later no longer met criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. So these are people who came in with chronic treatment-resistant PTSD, and after a year, two-thirds of them no longer uh, would qualify for that diagnosis. They were significantly improved in many ways. And the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, also granted a breakthrough therapy designation to this. So it's an exciting time. Um, the Good news is that um, I feel like the arc here is changing and both the government and the sort of uh, research and funding structures are looking at how these psychedelic medicines, which we can talk about what, what it's like, but can often invite, induce a, a really deeply powerful healing experience uh, that can be quite moving where people um, have really profound experiences. Um, the bad news is that most of these drugs are still Schedule One drugs, and most of the trials that are happening can only happen in sort of above-ground um, 
academic or institutional research settings. Now, there are many people who choose to use these substances in other ways, and there's an entire community of therapists out there that are hoping to, from a harm reduction perspective, support them in that so they make wiser choices. So there's a website called psychedelic.support. Uh, where many practitioners who are open to working with people who are using psychedelics uh, to help them do so in a uh, supportive way uh, that might minimize their harms. Um, I, I believe to be a part of that practice, people decide not to refer people to underground practitioners, for example. Um, and I think that people are trying to proceed with integrity in their in their professional practice, while at the same time recognizing that many people, including couples, come to them have doing their own MDMA therapy work together because they want to heal their relationship. And so um, uh, sometimes the aid of a, a psycho psychotherapist can help with that, either in the setup and the preparation and setting the space and the intention, or in the um, facilitation afterward to integrate what it was that happened between the two people and, and how to make sense of that and how to take those altered states of consciousness and transmute them into altered traits, into things that are enduring in our lives and the way that we care for each other, our bodies and our minds. It's really exciting and incredible what these substances can do under the right care and supervision and in the right way. And so, yeah, it is good that we're moving in a better direction. And hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast in a few years where it's all above board. And because <laughs> and, and, it, it does seem, you know, with the trials that have already happened, very, very promising. Pretty amazing. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit? about the the mechanisms that that are occurring in, you know the maybe a little of the neuroscience behind it in, in how it's helping couples maybe integrate and improve their relationships yeah my one of my colleagues dr ann wagner um has been doing a lot of couples work in this area and i think she she probably may be the an expert in this you know there are it's really interesting because um we're just beginning to understand how the, some of the neuroscience works here. Like, why is it that when people take these medicines in a really positive set and setting that they have these profound experiences? I mean, at our study at NYU working with cancer patients, we found that 83% of the people who received psilocybin mushrooms who were depressed, um, had, you know, had a significant reduction in their depression, which is a very, very high number. It's just people with uh, cancer and anxiety and depression related to it. Um, and so there's a number of different neural pathways. So, you know, mushrooms, for example, like psilocybin, um, are active at the 5-HT2A receptor site, uh, which is just the same site. It's a very similar chemical compound to serotonin. If you put serotonin on the left and psilocybin on the right, they're almost indistinguishable. They're very similar and operate in the same serotonergic system. Um, um, so they, but they cause sort of a, a flush of experience rather than what you might get with an SSRI over a long period of time. Um, it's also active in the AMPA system. MDMA is active in reducing the amygdala function, which is the fear center of the brain. So that people who normally get too, too afraid to go into and confront their trauma, um, suddenly are freed to look at something that's usually so scary that they kind of shut down and go into a panic or a fight or flight response. Um, the medicine allows them to look at that experience and to process it so that they get out of this like recurring cycle of, 
of a, a scary arc and are able to retell the story in a way where they, they come out of that trauma loop and enter into uh, a new resolution. Um, we see something in the brain called the default mode network. This is if you if you were to go today and go sit in a scanner and they give you a puzzle task and then they give you another puzzle task and then they just said okay just hang tight for a few minutes we're gonna go we're gonna go to the bathroom then you're just sitting in the scanner the daydreaming sort of space in between that happens is your default mode network it's what your brain does when it doesn't have a task in front of it it's also associated with how we understand ourselves, what we might think of our, our self or our ego. And so usually the default mode network is just sort of going all the time. It's sort of like the standard operating procedure of the brain. But with psilocybin and other classic serotonergic psychedelic medicines, we see that the default mode network starts to attenuate and go down. And what happens simultaneously is what we call increased functional neuroconnectivity habits, which is that different parts of the brain, literally different global regional areas of the brain, start to globally speak to each other. And so parts of the brain that don't normally talk to each other start to connect in new, interesting ways, forming new pathways, potentially healing pathways. And so this is why we have like synesthesia, where you can like see sounds and hear colors, that sort of thing, which is what we see oftentimes with these experiences. But I think it's richer than that. And then just one, just two more things I want to say, and then <laughs> I know it's a long answer to your question, but there's also what we learn with these psychedelics and with other psychedelics like ketamine, which is a very powerful and beautiful medicine that as one of the safest medicines we have and is legal in many clinics today, this promotes neuroplasticity, literally new cell growth in both the brain and the, and the, um, uh, and in the stem of the body. So this sort of neurogenetic procedure, uh, growth allows for new cells to grow, um, forming new types of learning. So in order to learn, oftentimes you can make new connections or strengthen old connections. So if you're in a depressive rumination and you have like a very strong ingrained pattern of depressively ruminating on things that are worrisome and anxious and, and sad, um, BDNF is a chemical that is produced in the psychedelic experience that for a period of a critical window for a few days or weeks after the experience allows people to make big changes in their life, to learn new things and to grow new connections. And this involves things like quitting smoking, quitting drinking, which is uh, one of the major areas of research in psychedelics, but it also may mean like learning new ways to relate to themselves and other people. So there's, there's quite a bit of going on. And the, and the biggest thing that we really don't know much about is that people have profound spiritual experiences. You know, I, I hate the, um, I think that word is loaded, soulful experiences, religious experiences, mystical experiences, but people have um, experiences of a transcendence of time and space, a feeling of being deeply connected to something beyond themselves and profound experience of love. I found this when I was interviewing our cancer patients and people just kept on using the word love over and over again. And I, I hadn't asked them about love, but, but they, they kept on talking about it. Um, and, and not just personal love, but sort of love that transcends the self. Um, and these spiritual experiences are statistically associated with improvements a year later in people's symptoms. So it's kind of a powerful new paradigm. Now there aren't, it's not that there aren't costs and difficulties, and we do our best to think about the, some of the, the fearful things that can happen when you are confronted with a psychedelic experience. And that's why we 
build so much attention to the practice. And I do not encourage people to go out on their own and just start taking a drug because they think that they're going to have a beautiful, powerful experience. I think that there are, we've learned a lot about how to safely hold these experiences uh, in relationship with people, in relationship with each other, uh, with good intention and integrity. And I think that those sorts of lessons really need to be uh, strictly followed. So until they become legal, how could someone listening that's interested, can they be prescribed this by a therapist, any of these modalities? And also without taking psychedelics, how can we tap into some of these things? Yeah. Um, you know, ketamine, most people who prescribe ketamine don't prescribe psychedelic ketamine. They prescribe very low levels of ketamine. If you go to a clinic for depression, for example, um, but your mom and dad's retail uh, pharmaceutical giant, Johnson and Johnson um, just got a big patent uh, for ketamine assisted therapy, um, or treatment. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty interesting time, uh, where, you know, Johnson and Johnson is using a psychedelic medicine as part of their practice. Um, there aren't that many great options and it's a, a sort of a frustrating time. Some people choose to travel to countries where it might be legal to take these medicines. Um, like Amsterdam, there's a, uh, a legal, mushroom retreat called synthesis and many people travel to South America to take um, an indigenous medicine that comes out of the Amazon called ayahuasca, for example. Um, um, but I think most people uh, find that it's really difficult to find a way to do this. I think that we can access altered consciousness through um, dance and breath and drumming and holding hands and coming into circle with each other in new and delightful ways. Um, and there's so many traditions of this. I mean, the, the yoga tantra practices, um, even white tantra, I don't even necessarily mean sexual tantra, uh, where people are doing uh, intense white tantra practices and kundalini yoga. This can oftentimes uh, bring about profoundly uh, altered and beautiful experiences for people in a way which is held um, and quite um, quite beautiful. Um, but I think it's the challenge. I think you've like put your finger right on the challenge of our time, which is that we've been out of touch with these sorts of ways of living with each other for so many generations that um, they don't exactly exist yet today. And there are certain circles of people doing them, I think, to good effect. Um, but I, I would hope that if we come back again in a few years uh, and do another podcast, that we'll see that there's been a bit of a, a blossoming or a flourishing. And I, I would challenge people and invite people to uh, take up the charge and explore their own minds, explore their own uh, consciousness. Because if you've been living your life in a, a tiny room of your mind, I think you would misunderstand the nature of the reality that might be open to you. And, um, and I, I hope I, part, of, part of what my work is is to help people do that. And I, um, it's, it's, uh, I kind of say it's so beautiful and touching um, to work with people who really are opening new doors in their own minds and bodies and in relationships. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alex. And, and before we wrap up, you really nailed it on the head. I really, we really do hope that... Uh, we can have you back on when this is all above board. Cause I think we're going to look back at this time. Cause it is so strange and be like, what in the hell? Like <laughs> this stuff is so amazing and what it's shown to do in the fact that we haven't 
been able to really unleash it when we used to, you know, our, like I said, our ancestors were using it and now we have the science backing up the benefits. So um, really can be a beautiful thing. And the last thing I would ask you as a researcher, what, what is holding back the, the laws being passed? Like, what do you see needing to happen from like a legislative standpoint besides it just obviously getting passed to not be schedule one? Well, you know, um, it's a little tough working in this area. Um, what's interesting is that there's been a massive influx of over a billion dollars in venture capital, like the venture capitalists have come to town and they're really excited about psychedelic medicine and they're really interested in funding it because they, they believe it's the next infrastructure play sort of in the sort of mental health and, and medical health fields. Um, I think that the sticking point is, is like, money and training and expertise. Um, you know, the government doesn't fund any research with psychedelic medicines. And most of these medicines are off patent, meaning that there's no really good way for most pharmaceutical companies to make money on them if they were to bring them to market. Um, and so they have to run a lot of studies to do that. It costs many, um, often scores or hundreds of millions of dollars in the way that the Food and Drug Administration has set it up. Um, oftentimes for good reason. Uh, so there's a, there's a, a number of barriers in the way. And um, unfortunately, it requires a lot of money. And sometimes we know that a lot of money sort of corrupts a process. So we're, we're doing our best to proceed um, with integrity. You know, one of the major um, sponsors in the space is MAPS. And if people are interested in their work, they can go to maps.org. Um, I'm, I'm a research therapist and study therapist for them. They, they operate as a not-for-profit and uh, they have a, a public benefit enterprise. So they're really trying to bring these medicines to people uh, and not make a bang, uh, make, not make a buck off of other people's experiences. So um, I, I tip my hat to them because that's hard to do. Thank you for that information. And again, yeah, thank you for the work that you're doing. And we'll have you back on in a couple of years when when this is all legal. We'll be, we'll, <laughs> hopefully it's just yeah. a couple. <laughs> and, after, and after you guys have done the good work of helping people with their relationships to each other and, and to themselves, thanks for uh, having me on. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Alex. And can you uh, tell our listeners where they can find more information about you online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a private practice. I, I do consultations by phone and people can find that at centerforbreakthroughs.com. Uh, and my academic uh, website is alexbelser.com. It's A-L-E-X-B-E-L-S-E-R.com. Um, so feel free to say hi and, and um, thanks for having me. Great. Well, thank you. And all those links will be on the show notes on our website, idpodcast.com and in the podcast description. And we hope to talk to you sooner than later. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much. Uh, you guys have a lovely day. Hi, guys. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, all the links are in the show notes page, as well as on the podcast description. And while you're on our website, we encourage you guys to check out our 14 day happy couple challenge. We send you an email for 14 days with simple, doable challenges to help strengthen and improve your relationship. And on our website, we also have a bunch of free resources for your relationship. So we encourage you to check those out. Uh, we also have our love tribe on Facebook. Uh, we encourage you guys to join the tribe and uh, be there for support for each other. If you have questions or just need some relationship advice, 
we are all here for each other. Um, the group has grown to almost a thousand people um, and we love it. So we hope you guys join that. You can go to Facebook, Love Tribe Fam, and you'll find us right there. And if you are interested in learning more about our flagship course, Spark My Relationship. We hope you guys check it out. We have a special offer that is only for podcast listeners. So you can go to sparkmyrelationship.com slash unlock and you can unlock that special offer and learn more. As always, thank you guys so much and we'll see you next week. listening to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com